I recommend streaming today's show on YouTube. You'll see a slideshow of Gregory Block's relevant artwork as our conversation unfolds. Click the link in the show notes to experience the episode with that visual component. Welcome to Relax Your Grid. I'm your host, Matt Brown. This 11th episode of the podcast is slightly different than the 10 that preceded it. Today's interview is with visual artist Gregory Block. Now, Greg trained as a pianist in his youth, and there's a strong connection between his art and music, as you'll soon hear. He also has a valuable perspective on losing and using the grid that is the theme of this show. And he is one of the most creative people I've ever met in every aspect of his life. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Gregory Block, welcome to Relax Your Grid. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. It's great to be back in this house, as you know, but listeners might not. When Sally and I first moved to Colorado, you had us stay with you. We rented a room from you, and it just feels so good to be back in this space with you. It is great to have you back, and on one level, it feels like you've never left, because nothing has moved for the most part, except for you, unfortunately. But. Yeah, we moved a little ways away, but an easy drive. And we're sitting here in your garage, which is really your studio, and I can see a painting in progress and some of your metal uh, artwork. I want to start with not an introductory question about where you went to school or anything. I want to start with this. What do you see when you hear music? That is such a loaded question in a way because I see so much when I hear music, and music is not something that you see unless you're, you know, reading sheet music. But it completely depends on on what the music is. And I hear music when I'm painting pictures. To a certain degree, it's a kind of synesthesia. Some of your listeners might know what that means, where basically your, your senses are interpreted, um, they kind of cross in your brain at some point. So you interpret a smell as being a kind of texture, or you interpret music as a certain visual, as you, as you just said. So, for example, Claire de Lune, you know, on the piano, this very, very calm, melodic, flowing piece, I, I certainly feel and see the moonlight and flowing water, and, and it puts me in that, in that world. Whereas you take a, a ragtime piece, Joplin, for example, and I see these blasts of red and orange color and just this vibrant life force that is, you know, it's more of an abstraction, especially considering the different rhythms that are happening in each hand. And it feels like a, like a big abstract expressionist, uh, a complex layered painting. So that's, that's, I mean, I see just about anything and that's one of the great beauties of music. And one of the reasons why I'm so touched that you actually considered interviewing me, a visual artist for a music podcast. Yeah. Well, I, I remember and know that you're, you're a trained pianist. How long did you play piano and, and, and how, how much was that a part of your life? Oh, goodness. I started taking lessons. I Started. I was given the choice between fiddle, 
violin actually as a as a child and piano at age six if i recall and i was so i i hated the fact that i had to hold the bow a certain way you know with my pinky standing out like this i just wanted to grab grab it in my fist so decided piano was going to be easier because at least i could move my fingers around and not have to be in this contorted like claw position for such a long time so yeah started at age six and continued taking lessons throughout high school on a weekly basis. And it was, it was a big part of my life. I kind of split my time playing piano and painting this whole time. And these were my two greatest passions. Did painting come first? Painting came first. I've been painting as long as I can remember from age, age two or three, picked up some watercolors and made a bunch of swirls on paper and so that was deeper into my bones the the music was something that was more technical that I could learn and and felt open to taking lessons from somebody for and then the painting was just always something that I did that I had to do and continually learn and progress on on my own It's really common in music instruction, like informal instruction, to to aim for perfection or to aim for like exactly mimicking what's on the page like you talked about or in the fiddle world, like how close can I get to how this source fiddle player played it before I really start to imbue myself. In your own experience as a painter, did you spend time trying to exactly replicate any of the great masters or have you always been able to just focus on what's what you're visualizing and getting it onto a canvas or a board. That's that's a really good question and the answer is no, I've never tried to exactly replicate any kind of composition of a particular piece or a technique. And I think this kind of gets to the title of of this podcast, Relax Your Grid, where you know you ask about the piano and this was it was about playing the notes. And I distinctly remember this one competition. It was a Kiwanis Stars of Tomorrow. And I was one of the state finalists. And we were playing at the Union Colony Civic Center in Greeley. Super nervous teenager, you know, like in this giant concert hall for the first time. And I came, I was playing the Sonata Pathétique by Beethoven. And when I sat down and looked at the program for the other competitors, there was another pianist who was playing the exact same song. Uh Uh-oh. And immediately I just thought, this is the worst, because, like, it is going to be an apples-to-apples comparison in a way. And and it was true. And watching back on the the videotape of the whole performance, our... Our two renditions of the song were so entirely different. Mine, the the tempo modulated all over the place. My my dynamics were just like super pronounced, and I thought I did really well. Um, there were some technical mistakes, but it seemed seemed good to me. Then I listened to the other performer. Not a single technical mistake, but also it sounded quite clinical to me, and so. 
it felt like that was a very gridded performance, if you will. It was on on point to the book, like perfect. Mine was flawed, but I think, you know, in retrospect and just thinking about the concept of structure versus like emotional interpretation and and all of that, I think I had a more relaxed grid there and I did okay. But with with painting, I've always felt a lot more relaxed. Like I'm never never following a script. It's always just one stroke at a time, trying to figure out where the painting is going and then following it. I listened to this radio interview you did a couple years ago, and in that you talked about the difference between a photograph and a painting and about, you know, capturing what's in the moment, like a photograph truly is just a snapshot. It's like what exact, what was happening at that exact second, but a painting, because it takes you longer with all those brushstrokes and all the days, it's, it's kind of a, you know, like it's a stop, stop motion kind of, uh, series of moments that have been gathered in one spot. Is that, is that a fair way of reframing? Oh, oh, you bet. Yeah. Yeah. A, A photograph captures a moment in you know the click of a shutter and a painting is a story it might visually be the same subject matter as a photograph but the fact that somebody has been executing it over the course of days weeks potentially even months um that the story of that painting is literally like impressed into the material and and that as a painter is i think one of the great powers that we have is that through the through the practice of executing a certain composition whether we know it or not we are like we are telling the story of our life and the way that we're thinking and and processing everything that happens on a daily basis that is is part of the painting too and that whether 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 they know it or not the viewer will be able to feel that. So I've come to terms with the fact that people often call me a photorealist painter, but that's certainly not what I'm trying to do. I I don't want my paintings to be be really anything like a photograph. I I want to be realistic to the point where people can feel like you're almost about to reach in and grab the subject matter or walk straight into a landscape. But it's a landscape unlike anything you could actually see in the real world, or it's a still life unlike anything that could be captured in a moment because it is so imbued with that story. Well, it totally works. And I've, you know, I've, I've peeked in on you working here and you might have a photograph that you're referencing um, as part of, you know, recalling what you're visualizing or, or having, having a reference point, but the proof to me that you succeed so remarkably and so uh, repeatedly with with that goal that you just described is that last night I was scrolling through both the archived work on your website, which I'll include a link to in the show notes because we're talking about painting and it's nice to actually look at what we're talking about. Um, and then also your, your gallery, Gallery 1261, you're a featured artist for them, 
they have a bunch of images of your artwork. I looked at as many of, of your, your work, as much of your work as I could find on those two sites. And I'll admit to you, I don't like donuts. <laughs> but I've never been hungrier for a donut. I've never looked at a donut with such like passion and desire as I do when I look at, you have this whole series of various glazed donuts. And I remember when you were starting this, you know, th- this series, and I, I was looking back at these photographs and I feel so many emotions and so much hunger. And like, I'm looking at them again now, and I am so hungry looking at your paintings of donuts. Whereas if you showed me a photograph of that same shot, I'd probably say, where's the chocolate? Like, give me a, give me a chocolate bar. I look at your paintings, even just photos of your paintings, and I just I want to reach in there and just just throw them all into my mouth. I am so touched that you react that way because in large part that's how I feel too. I have grown to like donuts more. <laughs> kind of just because I I've immersed myself in that world in more ways than one. I can tell you just about any donut shop in the Denver metro area. Um and maybe who's working behind the desk and who is going to give me a donut that's smashed or one that is pristine and ready to paint. And, and yeah, I've, I've eaten them in every single way, fresh, stale, like a day stale, two days stale, a month and a half, just completely dry as a bone, crackly, crunch it in some granola. I wasn't really a big fan of them before, but there was just this one day when I opened a box, some people who were living with me, they brought home a box of donuts. I opened this thing up and looked inside and just saw, heard, like you said, like just, I was inundated with this sensory experience that I didn't really anticipate. And it might've just been because my mind was looking for color and texture. And this was just, this box was so full of that. And it might've just because been because I smelled something or, you know, you never really know how inspiration is going to strike. But this particular day it was in a box of donuts. And <laughs> so I, I took some photographs because generally the angle at which I paint these donuts kind of makes it impossible to paint from life, which is my preferred method. I'd like to have a, a setup and actually watch it in person without the filter of a camera between us um but yeah I've, I've done quite a few of these paintings and some way somehow have not gotten tired of them and it's because each each donut each each piece each component of this composition is really a fresh a fresh world of color texture line shape all of the fundamentals of visual art that um are really conducive to creating a, a fun experience in the painting. So it'll take, you know, maybe a couple hundred hours to do some of these big pieces. And sometimes I find my cal- myself kicking myself for choosing three donuts with sprinkles for a total of 750 sprinkles. Each is shaded individually with reflected light and cast shadow and all of this. And, Going from sprinkle to sprinkle is such a meditative process and you just take a long time and then you finish that one, go on to the next, like an old fashioned donut that's sitting next to it. It's a completely different world. 
where then it's just bumps and ridges and canyons and all of this golden texture and glazes and light and and it's just so invigorating to really look closely at these things that we generally take for granted on a daily basis and um kind of pour your heart and soul into them well you you definitely do because i you know i love all of your work and i i respond to all of it in different levels of intensity but i think that I think the series that I respond to with the most, like just surges of emotion are the donuts. Well, that's, you know, I find them to be one of the most musical ones too. Um, you know, you asked what, what do you see when you listen to music? And here I hear a lot when I'm looking at these, when I'm doing these paintings. Right. So here, for example, let's play a game. Yeah. If you see a a bright pink glazed donut with light glinting off the surface, what key is that in? E major. E major? That's that's my wrong. I don't have synesthesia though. No, it's G major. G major. Okay. No, there's no right answer. <laughs> there's no right answer, and I don't necessarily have have synesthesia either. But it's it's major. And very. I major. think we can we can agree on that. Yeah. What if it was green and kind of with a cracked surface with some shadow cast on the edge of the box kind of thing? I would go more C or F or B flat, like going more into the flat keys. Yeah, I was I was thinking like an A flat minor Whoa. or something. Whoa, that's deep. But, well, so is green. You know, yeah. the color green is it's kind rich of deep and, and it's it seems more pensive. And so, so in doing these paintings, it kind of throws me for a for a loop in terms of emotions and and sound and color and you know people ask how long it takes to do a piece and when i say you know a couple hundred hours maybe i think the initial reaction is god you must get bored but not in the slightest it's like i can do it in silence and not feel the silence whatsoever because it's just all in my eyes my head my ears it's fun. I'll say that much. The thing that's really rushing back to me being in this space with you again is remembering how many hours you spend working in your studio. And do you use the word working or do you just, just I, say painting? I, I started using the word working when I was probably 16 in high school. And all my friends were telling me to go out and party. And I, I used to say, you know, I, I, it's Saturday evening, you know, I, I'm painting and that was, that was hard, yeah. you know, yeah. it was people, people didn't. Yeah. Basically you say working because then folks like kind of respect you more. It never feels like working. It, it still is. I still am that 16 year old who's just like painting in the corner of the kitchen on a Saturday night. And I used to feel guilty that I wasn't out like having a great time with all of, all of the kids and, you know, smoking and drinking and doing the stuff that you should, shouldn't be doing at that age. Now, in part because I justify it as working, but in part just because I realize that this is who I am and this is what I need to do and love to do. I don't think of it as working, but I call it working. I really appreciate that distinction. I didn't talk about what I do as work until until watching one of my favorite musicians. His name is Mark Schatz, and he's a bass player. Mm -hmm. 
and he played with Tony Rice for so many years and Bela Fleck on a bunch of albums and then toured with, with Nickel Creek. And he's a great banjo player and he dances and he's just a fantastic person. And a lot of the listeners who are coming from the music side have invariably heard his, his bass playing, if not his banjo playing as well. Mark and I had brunch one day in Chicago when Nickel Creek was playing a show that night. And I dropped him off at the theater. And I, I distinctly remember when I dropped him off, it was in the alley for this particular theater. And there was a security guard there just to make sure that the people coming to the artist entrance or the backstage entrance, stage door entrance, whatever it is, that they all were supposed to be going in that door and not, you know, coming to buy a ticket for later on. And Mark walked up to that guy and in a very matter of fact way said, hey, my name's Mark. I'm working here tonight. He didn't say I'm performing here tonight. He didn't say I'm with the band or like I'm with Nickel Creek. It showed a respect for the security guard who was already there at work. Um, it's like, I'm also working here tonight it was kind of the implied part of it. And it made me realize when we talk to other people about what we do, whether it's painting or teaching music or anything in between what you do and what I tend to do these days, it's important to call it work so that it doesn't get shoved aside or, or treated as some, you know, some activity that, that doesn't deserve money, uh, you know, fair compensation or, or time. Like if, if on a Saturday night you need to work, even if you enjoy it, then yeah, you should work. <laughs> that's, yeah, no, that's entirely true. And I like that story um, and that image because it's also a kind of an equalizing right. word where, you know, you might be a celebrity who's going to perform this giant show or you not you know you might be getting on stage to to an audience of 50,000 people or something and by calling it working to the security guard you're showing that you're acknowledging that they are working right and so are you we're right. on the same page here and on the same team on the same team yeah and and that's that's something that I'm always struck by the fact that anytime ever people learn that I'm an artist their first reaction is to say, "Oh, I I'm not creative whatsoever. Like I can't I can't I can't do this. I I'm I can't even draw a stick figure." And the thing is, everybody has a creative part of them, and and whether it's how you parent or whether it's how you are able to problem solve with plumbing and fit parts together, or you know remodel a bathroom or put roofing tiles on a roof. It's like, this is, this is stuff that I can't do. This is your work and I have my work and we all have these various ways of solving problems, which in the end really is what creativity is. Right. Um, we're given kind of a, a set of, of conditions and, and then, you know, as an artist, it's like you, you're making a two dimensional composition of colors, shapes, line, and texture and trying to make it visually appealing or make it tell a story. And as a contractor, you're doing the same thing in three dimensions, trying to put the shapes together and make it appealing and make it functional. Right. So, yeah, in, in, any, in any case, it's work. If it's the thing that you've kind of devoted your time and your life to, and most importantly, if it's what you depend upon financially, like that's that's kind of what makes it work and what makes it not, I think, in today's society.
at what point in your life were you making a living as an artist? Well, uh, immediately after college, Colorado College in Colorado Springs, I graduated with a degree in biology um, and had kind of been planning the pre-med route and and spent countless hours in the lab, you know, titrating chemicals and some late nights with a bottle of isopropyl alcohol in the cabinet and then maybe a bottle of American Eagle bourbon in the other cabinet and <laughs> trying not to make, not to get them mixed up. After, after that undergrad, I decided, you know, I really missed painting. I missed the long hours spent painting. And I just, yeah, I resolved to take one year a gap year, if you will, of just painting pictures and seeing if I could sell them. And more importantly, seeing if after the end of that year, if I felt burnt out on painting, right? if it became, you know, a, a slog or if I was just more invigorated by the process. And so to answer your question, that year ended without, I didn't get a job. I was caretaking my stepfather and mom's mom's house, so I was able to stay almost rent free. Um, I made three thousand dollars from a number of sales, total like three thousand dollars, and fortunately, I didn't have any student debt, so I didn't have that you know sort of Damocles hanging over me, and that three thousand dollars was enough to buy ramen and rice and beans and a little space heater to keep my tiny studio warm. And, and so that was, that was enough money. And I was just more passionate about the process than ever before. So I took another year and then another year. And now it's been, you know, close to 15. Wow. Um, but it was that kind of the end of that first year where I decided I probably was never going to be terribly wealthy especially, you know, starting out at, at three grand a year is right. not a lot, but that was okay. As long as I could have my work be my passion. I'd say, and the reason I called you very successful or whatever words I used is you have your own home. You have a be- beautiful property. The house is lovely. You get to do what you're passionate about. To me, that's, su- that's success. I, I agree entirely. I struggle with how, how I like to think about your hours because it seems wrong to say that you're very disciplined. I don't know if you agree with this. I I feel like it's more that this passion that you have is just propelling you in a way that seems incredibly sustainable and and maybe that there would be surges and um recessions in it, but I I would love to hear your perspective on like how much of it feels like discipline you're imposing on yourself and how much of it is the passion for what you're doing just carrying you you know, into the night, getting up the next morning, because you're so prolific. And I, I see you as, as having a high output and not getting burned out like you were talking about. Yeah. And I, I find this to be an endlessly fascinating topic when speaking to other artists, musicians, writers, you know, creatives in general, how they structure their day and how they feel at different points throughout the course of that day. I mean, there, there are writers out there, for example, who get up, just religiously at 6.30 in the morning and they write for exactly two and a half hours and then the rest of the day is free. Um, Or, you know, you have a certain number of words that you have to make sure that you hit your your word quota for the day and then 
you're done. Um, so that I would call discipline. Agreed. On another, on the other hand, I think it's also passion, um, because I imagine that 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 kind of distilled little period of time is is just super energized and hopefully passionate. Maybe you're slogging through it at some points, but. And then there, there are others who just kind of assume an artist, oh, you just kind of paint something whenever inspiration hits. And then the rest of the time you're just prancing around in the woods having, <laughs> you know, just carefree life, which, you know, for some people that might be the case. But I, I don't consider myself disciplined. Okay. But I do show up every morning. I, I paint basically every day unless I'm out of town or doing something like that. And generally for eight to 10 hours a day now, which is a lot of hours. And you know, it's over the weekends as well. It's not on a set schedule necessarily. Right. But I, yeah, I wouldn't call it a discipline. I wouldn't call it purely a passion either. More and more, I, I definitely consider it something of an addiction. Oh, okay. Where if I am not in that environment, if I'm not able to express myself in, in a way like this, then after four or five days, I might start to get a little cranky. Right. And I have to make sure that the people who are around me either recognize the fact that I'm away from my fix or, you know, at least bring a, a drawing pad or something and sketch their faces and kind of get my yayas out that way. Right. And... Um, you know, I imagine like as a musician or as a writer, like if you can't write music or play music for a week or maybe even listen to it, there's a serious void in your life. And, um, and that's, so that's how I feel when I'm not showing up and doing my work as it were. And I've come to terms with that. There are a lot of worse addictions that are out there. There's a couple. Yeah, I think. And. And so I, I feel like if you have to be wedded to doing something, try to make it constructive rather than destructive. Yeah, if it pays your rent, I mean, or your mortgage. Well, yeah, there's that too. <laughs> Is the addiction to painting in particular or expressing yourself? That's a good question. And it's definitely to to be creating something. Okay. I consider my life to be formulated around the ABCs, which is always be creating sh- shit. Yeah, you can curse on this podcast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. can I? Yeah, oh, yeah. People say fuck and shit. And... Oh, my goodness. We, should we redo all the first 32 minutes? Oh, uh, we, we could. <laughs> yeah, boy, there are a lot of rephrasing options. To answer your question, if, if I can be making something, creating something, and really feel invested in a project that is has like a tangible outcome where I could be moving my hands, smelling sawdust, you know, just putting pieces together, taking them apart, whatever it is then I'm generally satisfied. Like building furniture or working out in the garden, um, you know, harvesting apples and pears and making juice. The The harvesting part, you know, it's not going to take me through months of feeling satisfied. Right. But yeah, just just to be making things is, is really, that's my MO. That's kind of my life force. It makes a lot of sense. And the Patreon supporters of this podcast are in for a real treat. Greg's going to give you a tour of his lovely home, which includes all this handmade furniture. Sally and I slept for three months um, in a room 
filled with furniture you made. And I used to work out back um, on this beautiful banquet table that you made. And it's it's clear that, yeah, this this urge or this addiction to creativity isn't contained onto like, you know, a piece of wood or, you know, a round piece of art that has scorched aluminum on it and, and it might end up in a gallery one day. Some of it is what you live with and, and what, what fills your, your home and your, your everyday life. And then out in the garden with the compost and the, and the everything you grow. Yeah. We, we live in a disposable culture where it's so easy to go buy something that you feel like you need, like a coffee table or whatever, and you buy it and use it for a little while and then toss it out later. But if you can actually make your stuff, make your furniture, make your food, make, make your life, in a way, then every moment of it is that much more satisfying. And you're always being an artist. And you're always being an artist. Yeah. I want to return to your, the work that you sell, um, because I'm, I have a great view now of your easel, but also of several pieces of art that are scorched aluminum. And I remember when we first came to this house that around the house itself, there weren't paintings everywhere. But instead, there were these incredible works of art that are made out of aluminum that you've scorched and turned either into something very representational, you know, a map of Paris, a map of Denver, or others that are not as representational, at least to my, you know, initial glimpse. How did you get into uh, scorching aluminum and why is it so awesome? Because I love, I love this line of work of yours. I'm, I'm so glad you noticed that. That was like the first thing you noticed in the house. The inspiration really, at least the Genesis story that I tell and may or may not be true. I, you know, sometimes we convince ourselves that these things are the true story and it really isn't. But going to school out in rural Colorado up outside Oak Creek, we had all of these woodsy parties we call them you know out by a bonfire everybody's out there drinking beer these are the saturdays when i wasn't painting in the kitchen right um right and just out there you know drinking cheap beer and throwing our cans into the bonfire yep you wake up the next morning kind of half in half out of the coals trying to stay warm in the winter time up there in the woods and i remember one of these cans had like busted open and had roasted itself over the coals and there's this beautiful like rainbow blossom pattern of patina that was created on the inside of this can and maybe i was just in the headspace where i just like was looking at it for a long time and really grooving on it and and it wasn't immediately thereafter that i started doing that on purpose throwing these cans into a bonfire and scorching them but eventually i decided you know this is a really cool texture color treatment that I can't get with paints and I wouldn't want to try to get it with paints. So I, I started collecting cans. I have a whole bunch of friends who to this day collect all of their soda cans and beer cans and stuff. And I'll cut the tops and bottoms off and kind of slit it open like a fish with a pair of scissors and then scorch it on a bonfire over the coals, just like you're roasting marshmallows. <laughs> and you get all these different patina colors and and then it's like a paper thin material and you can cut it into any shape you want with just a regular pair of like craft scissors. Wow. And then I'll nail it to a board, nail each piece to a board, you know, cut it into a shape and make these big collages. 
And it's a great balance to the more meticulous painting process where, you know, I really love to paint throughout the course of the day. And then, you know, if I still feel like being creative, but I'm just kind of tired of, of using these delicate little brushes, there's nothing better than just banging away at some pieces of aluminum with a hammer <laughs> and turning the music up a little bit. And, and trust me, like dealing with these tacks, I'm constantly listening to nine inch nails. Well, you have and to. No, of course. Yeah. And, and Trent Reznor never sounds better than when you're actually like hitting something with a hammer. It's just, it's fantastic. <laughs> so all the color that, that we see in these finished pieces has been brought out in the bond, like in the scorching, the burning process. You're not doing anything after the heat to accentuate or to change the colors. These are on occasion. All... I I might do an overlay of acrylic paint. Okay. If some of the colors, if I'm not feeling that it's right, it's always just a black or white paint though. Okay. Um, to either mute or heighten oh, that okay. section of color. Um, but yeah, one of the reasons I, I like having them around the house is that we live in these very angular spaces yeah. architecturally and and with these compositions it's really easy to create different shapes namely like circular kind of mandala yeah. pieces that feel much more organic and somehow help with the feng shui if you will of moving around a space and then you have the light that reflects off from the sun and so it's never the same twice and so I don't really show them at galleries anymore, um, but it is kind of the stuff that I like to be surrounded by. Yeah, it makes for a really nice energy in the home. Um, Thank you. And I've never been in another home like it. As a yeah. result, like it's just not something you see a lot. And so when I come over to your house, it's like, oh yeah, I've got this this very, I don't know, it's very a peaceful energy about them. And you can stare at them for a long while and, and you know, what, what I see changes or what I'm thinking can drift into different directions in a way that I love. How much of your work is commission-based these days? Well, I used to say for a long time that I don't take commissions. Yeah. But... The truth is I, I do if I want to. Yeah. And so you can tell really quite quickly whether a project proposal coming from somebody else is going to be something that you want to approach. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Like if, if somebody asked you to write a rock anthem, you might do it. If you had just watched a documentary about Queen or something, you know, like right, right. if your head is in that space, yeah. then then you might be up for a challenge, something that you wouldn't do otherwise. Yeah. And, and that's how I am. Um, you know, if I find myself kind of languishing in a certain practice, that's starting to get boring. And then somebody approaches me asking for something that's completely kind of, you know, off the wall, if you will. Um, I might entertain doing that thing. And, and quite often I'll be asked to do a commission and there are certain stipulations and I will say, no, not a chance, but then find myself crawling back to them with my tail between my legs a year and a half later saying, this actually sounds kind of nice right now. Like, are you still open to this? Yeah. I, I would say to answer your question, there might be 
10% of what I do right now, 10% of my time spent on work is a direct commission, meaning somebody approaches me and says like, I have this wall and I really like what you did here with this piece. Could you do something similar? Right. And I really love being able to, you know, be discriminating in terms of what I want to do when I want to do it. And, and again, for a long time, I just wanted to say no, because my idea was to retain my own creative agency and not be working under some, some overlord who's like going to make me change the colors in this place. And yeah, but the truth is being an artist, as most people know, is a relatively solitary practice, a, a visual artist, a painter, especially it's, it's pretty solitary. You spend lots of hours on your own doing your own thing and it can certainly be beneficial to just take that injection of external energy external inspiration and try to work it into your practice that makes sense that makes a lot of sense and i like this idea of no but that no sometimes meaning not now and that but maybe 18 months from now that could be still that could turn into a yes Mm -hmm. um i can relate to that a lot I have this dream that someone's going to listen to this podcast and then buy like one of your most expensive pieces of art. That's oh, available. trust me. I, I dream that for sure. That's my <laughs> dream. <laughs> so, um, as I mentioned earlier, we will have links to make it as easy as possible for folks to see your work, um, just on your own site. And then also at the gallery, can you tell us just a little bit about your relationship with that gallery? How long you've had work there and what's currently available. This will come out, you know, January 1 of 2022. What's sure. likely to be there for purchase um, at that time? Well, thank you for asking. And I just want to make it clear that the last thing on my mind really is to try to sell anything to any of your supporters. There's There because, might be someone, though. There's going to be someone who's like, I have this wall. Well, you know, if, if they insist, <laughs> then that'll be fine. But just to just to be able to speak and kind of hash out some of my thoughts with you with your like super intelligent questions is, is such a pleasure. So that is worth its weight in gold to me, but, but yeah, beginning January, 2022 at gallery 1261 in Denver, there's no saying exactly what kind of inventory there's going to be. I am, we will be observing my 10 year anniversary with that gallery. Wow. Which incidentally was, it's a long story how I was invited to show there, but it's far and away the best gallery in Denver. And that is what I thought before I wasn't represented by them because my favorite artists, uh, Daniel Sprick is one of them. Um, look him up, you know, your listeners can look him up if you'd like. And Michael Lynch was another, I idolized these two painters as a, as a kid and then was invited to, show at the gallery and looked up the gallery and saw, Oh, this is where they show. Wow. That's so amazing. It was just one of those things that, you know, over the course of a career, every now and then you have these very providential somehow moments that it's like, you never would have thought it would be possible. So we're celebrating my 10 year anniversary with the gallery and I will have a solo show sometime in 2022. 
I'm not sure what it will be composed of in terms of subject matter. Yeah. It is one of those things where there are so many options out there and I will kind of know more in the next month or so once I actually start working on that. But there will be other work there, existing work, yeah. potentially some donuts. I was going to say, if those donuts aren't gone by the time this airs, <laughs> get on it, folks. Well, I just delivered some yesterday. And okay, so, fresh donuts. And, and as I said, eating the real ones four months later isn't that bad. And the paintings <laughs> last considerably longer. So those, those will likely be, be there at the gallery. And yeah, I'm excited for 2022 and figuring out what this show is going to comprise. So will you will you actually set out then to make new work knowing that you're going to show for your 10 year anniversary? Like, will that will that drive your decisions about what you do in the in the next couple months? Yeah. OK. Yeah, you bet. But you and that's still floating around. It is. Yeah. It is. Awesome. And it's always a challenge because if any of your your listeners are to go onto my website and see like kind of the breadth of the subject matter, it can be somewhat difficult to put together anything, a body of work that is even remotely cohesive, <laughs> like like visually speaking, because I am so omnivorous in terms of yeah. where inspiration comes. Um, so, so yeah, it is, it's one of those things where you just kind of feel it throughout the course of a particular painting, whether you can do a whole bunch of pieces that are going to be related to that piece. Yeah. Um, you know, how deep is that well, if you will? And so that's a question I'll be asking myself. Wow. I just had this vision that you do not have to follow through on of your 20 year anniversary there, where not only is all the work on display, like on the walls made by Gregory Block, but also like the benches that you sit on if your legs are a little tired, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, like he made that too. He made the, the doorknobs. Like, I, I, I love that idea. Because, I mean, my favorite piece in a museum or a gallery is generally the one in front of the bench where you can sit <laughs> and, like, you know... Actually be. Yeah, you're maybe jittery of being at the coffee shop for such a long time and you're tired of walking around. And if you can sit and straighten your back and look at something for a long time, like, the bench piece is always going to be the good piece. So maybe the bench can be good, too. Right. Why not? Like, maybe the thought is more like, how do you pair the bench with a piece than like the piece with the other piece, you know, across the, the oh, room? Oh, you're killing me, Matt. Just an idea. You might be joking. I'm but not. I'm not. Any, I'm not joking anymore. Yeah. No, I don't think so. Because that's I, I've had the same experience since I was a kid, even like on school field trips. We'd go to these amazing, you know, art museums in Philadelphia or whatever. And of course, there's all this great stuff to look at, but I would often find myself like physically kind of uncomfortable, like the floors are hard and my lower back would just never feel quite right. So sitting on that, wherever that bench is, like that was an oasis in this place where I'm really supposed to be taking in what I'm seeing. But like if your body's not comfortable, mm -hmm. how are you going to really be present with it? So I think pairing, yeah, pairing the, the bench with the, the work, which is, you know, the bench is also a work of art. But anyway... <laughs> Yeah, free idea yeah. for you. Mm -hmm. And please, I want to I want to come to that show if it ever happens. Oh well, I'll let you know. You'll have the bench. The last thing I want to talk to you about before we wrap up is that you got to do a mural in Steamboat Springs, where I know your family's been going there for quite a long time. And Sally and I were supposed to go to Steamboat and see your mural, and then something about COVID and travel restrictions 
in that county shut that trip down. So I haven't been to see it yet, but I remember that you made this mural. Can you tell me how it came to be and then just describe for the listener what what they'd see if they go to Steamboat and find the side of the wall? Oh, man. Well, this was this was one of those things, those kind of mixed blessing COVID stories where, uh, you know, galleries were basically shut down. There weren't like we weren't having in-person receptions or anything. And, you know, that continues today as we record this in November or December 2021, at least to a certain extent. Um, and as a visual artist, suddenly with an empty calendar, it really opened the possibility to do things that I wouldn't otherwise do. Um, just as many musicians were able to finally start writing songs and recording in ways that they wouldn't otherwise and collaborating, um, you know, launching a podcast. Yeah, what I did. Yeah. You know, like it just kind of opened a great many doors because others had been shut. So this was a, a call for artists that the arts council, it's called Steamboat Creates. They put out there and they're like, you know, we're trying to make this mural. It's 30 feet wide, 20 feet tall. Um, and we want it to represent all arts in the Yampa Valley. And so meaning like the performing arts, music, uh, visual arts, all, you know, all arts. And I thought, you know, what the heck? I'll, I'll give it a shot because I've never done a mural and it would be fun. And just thinking that, you know, other people who actually have past experience at this would certainly be chosen over me, but it actually took some some arm twisting on the part of Steamboat Creates because evidently they weren't getting that many submissions. Oh. And so a couple of my friends over there coaxed me with the promise of apple pie and bourbon. <laughs> and at that point, I put in an application and it was accepted. And it was just... So the design is, is a fiddle floating above a bunch of clouds it's kind of the centerpiece and it's floating above this skyscape kind of a sunset skyscape so there's a fiddle and a painter's palette with glops of paint on it and some sheet music it is the raindrop prelude um because it's been so dry up there i was hoping you know wishing a little bit of rain up up in the western rockies and then a couple a couple photographs these are obviously paintings of old historic photographs of the founders of perry mansfield performing arts center which is a really a, a kind of country a nationally renowned performing arts center that's up there in steamboat so that was that's the design and i went up there having not had any experience with this process and and it was really a blast um, in so many ways, just, just learning as I went and it was in October of 2020 and I was able to visit with all of my great friends off of the top of the scissor lift and come <laughs> on down and, and talk to them with my, with the respirator on, you know, everybody had to wear masks. And so it wasn't that big an issue to be breathing through this respirator and, um, I basically, I kept my same painting practice, but on a much larger scale. And one of the things that really helped me out was the grid. 
And I start just about every painting, anything that has even a remotely complex compositional structure, I start with a grid. And for many, many years, this was my dirty little secret, I thought, because there is one elementary school art class where, I don't know if you did this, um, where you take a photograph of something. In this case, it was a photograph of ourselves, and we're going to do a self-portrait using a grid to, to structure the drawing. So we took this photograph of ourselves, drew a, a grid, like a one-by-one-inch um, grid. I don't remember how many squares it was. And then the same grid on a larger scale on the piece of paper. Then rather than tackling the whole composi composition, the whole face, and trying to figure out where this eye goes and that eye and the nose, you can figure out this square on the photograph, on your source material, translates to this square on on the piece of art. And I was doing that with many of my paintings for a long time, starting the blank canvas with a light graphite grid and then doing the rough structural drawing um, the same way. And again, for a long time, I was really like kind of guilty about that. And, and if anybody was going to come for a studio tour, I'd make sure that the grid was hidden. Or... No way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I thought it was cheating because it made things easier, you know, um, until I saw this. It was a... Uh, it was a Van Gogh exhibition at the Denver Art Museum. And part of the exhibition was a picture frame that had string stretched across it in a grid, and it was fastened to this stake. And he would take this picture frame out, out into, you know, the field of irises or whatever, jam it into the ground, set up his easel, and look through the picture frame so that whatever he was looking through was on a grid, was in a grid. And that's precisely what I was doing with my still lifes. I had various sizes of picture frames with string strung, strung across them to grid it. And, and so I saw that Van Gogh, of all people, who's not necessarily known as a realist, uh, he was doing that. Suddenly, it, it was like full affirmation and permission to continue with that, which is a long way of saying that that's how I was able to do this mural, um, translate my source material to something as large as 20 by 30 feet. Wow. And most people, they, they asked me, how was I projecting the image onto the wall in this close little alley? Like, what kind of projector were you using to make it so big like that? And it's like, yeah, no, I'm not using a projector. I'm using a grid. And so suddenly my way of cheating was actually the hard way most people would have projected a mural image and then kind of traced over the projection. Right. But I just did it square by square. And that to me is one of the most satisfying pieces of any, of any composition is actually like finding where all the shapes go. Tracing something is, is boring. Right. Yeah. So where in steamboat Springs is this? It is in the alley off of 8th Street and Oak. Okay. So if you're going west on Highway 40, which is Main Street, Steamboat, if you're going west, you turn right on 8th Street and then right on the first alley. 
and you'll see a big fiddle floating in the sky. Um, yeah, it's, and it's just such a great honor. You know, I lived in Steamboat for 20 years. It's my hometown and to be able to have a little, little stamp there on it and take some pride in, in that little alleyway where, where you've got your dumpsters and your FedEx truck always sitting there idling. It's, it's, yeah, it feels that much more like home. Wow. Well, Greg, it has been an absolute honor to have you on the pod. And I think you managed to discuss both the value of freedom from the grid, but also the value of having a grid all in one conversation. I feel like I can just close up shop right now. This is the last episode. No, I'm kidding. There are a couple. <laughs> I've got like 30 more people on my list that I want to talk to. But thank you so much. This has been a real treat. It has been my treat. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. It's such a pleasure. To support this program, do what Greg Block did and become a Relax Your Grid superfan on Patreon. For just $2 a month, you get an exclusive video with every episode, plus I'll send you a sticker in the mail with a Relax Your Grid logo on it. Just go to patreon.com slash mattbrownsdream. Relax Your Grid is produced and engineered by me, Matt Brown. Tim Brown provided post-production assistance. Otto Allard is the designer. Recent guest Max Allard, who is now in his first year as a composition major at Oberlin Conservatory, wrote and recorded the piano interludes in this episode. Tune in next time for my interview with banjo renaissance man Jake Sheps. And until then, relax your grid. <laughs> <laughs>